0: Welcome to the Park Podcast, where dialogue across difference is vital to community wellness. I'm Dr. Leah Howard, your host in the space where open dialogue, the free exchange of ideas, and civil and robust expression of divergent views is valued. Here we will explore the research, the practical applications, and the benefits of effective, ethical, and civil dialogue in a diverse world. We hope to model respectful conversation that accurately and authentically frames contentious issues, hoping to reach an ideologically diverse audience. Welcome to the sixth and final episode of our series on Communities of Practice. We ask our partner organizations to help us better understand how they see the Penn community and to describe the types of practices they use to engage others in their work on campus. The nonprofit Campus Compact defines a community of practice as a learning community or collegial network defined as a group of people who share interest in an area of inquiry and engage in collective learning about that issue as it relates to their work or practice. Through discussion, joint activities, and relationship building, the community of practice develops a shared and individual repertoire of resources, skills, and knowledge to use in their practice. So how can we learn together about our community as citizens and what practices best facilitate that learning? Our guest today is an expert at promoting healthy relationships between people, bringing accountability in situations of interpersonal harm, and empathizing the inherent work worth of all individuals and our interconnectedness. We are looking forward to hearing today from Pablo Sedera, Associate Director of Restorative Practices at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Pablo. Thank you for the deeply important work you do at Restorative Practices at Penn, the university's center, for providing safe, confidential, supportive resources for all parties involved in incidents of harm. The past couple years have been so challenging and we are very interested and curious to hear your ideas about the Penn community and advocating for students across campus. So, Pablo, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, including your background working in the criminal justice system and your role as the Associate Director of Restorative Practices at Penn?
1: Well, Leah, I want to say thank you so much for having me um, and for that lovely introduction. Um, I really appreciate everything that you shared, um, and I think you articulated in a lot of ways. Uh, the core ideas that we try to embody in our practice here at Restorative Practices at Penn. I first learned about restorative justice in undergrad in a course that targeted the system of mass incarceration. And restorative justice was framed in that context as a non-punitive way to deal with harm in communities and, and in a way to help promote meaningful accountability uh, that did not contribute to the prison industrial complex. Um, and I was immediately really taken with this philosophy or with this practice. First of all, because it seemed like just an approach that could work in what seemed like a really intractable problem, uh, an approach that could help make meaningful change in a social issue that mattered a great deal to me. And then I was incredibly lucky uh, after undergrad to get a placement at a place called the Legal Rights Center in Minneapolis, which did, uh, who had a program called the Youth Education and Restorative Services Program, um, where I served as an AmeriCorps Promise Fellow and then later worked, uh, continued to work there as a case manager. And I was working, managing the nitty gritty unsexy parts of restorative justice, um, doing logistics, scheduling, taking notes at conferences. And I learned so much in that context about the broader philosophy of what restorative justice and restorative practices is all about, especially what it means in terms of community, which is incredibly relevant to the conversation we're having today. Um, The idea that restorative justice is not just a diversion program from the criminal legal system, though we did do diversion work with the Minneapolis and St. Paul police departments and uh, and also within the school districts of Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, but that it was also a, a philosophy about being in good relations with other people um, and that you could really have a deep, meaningful impact outside of the criminal system uh, to prevent harm from happening and to make communities more resilient in the face of harm uh, when it does inevitably. So that was a bit of my background and the orientation that I brought to this work. Um, and as I mentioned, started here at Penn back in February of 2020, six weeks before the pandemic hit. So you can say these have been challenging years, uh, as you said, Leah, um, and they, they certainly have been. Um, but I felt really able to connect with the community here, um, both because of the practices that we engage in encourage community building, but also because there was a real hunger, I found. Um, coming in even before the pandemic hit, but especially afterwards, for people to be in relationship with others. So that takes me to what do we do uh, as in my, what do I do in my role as Associate Director for Story Practices at Penn. Um, The mission of our uh, program is to work with students at that faculty, and we do work to proactively promote good community, um, we use a variety of different facilitation techniques and uh, uh, concepts of that nature to help people uh, build communities, make decisions, um, celebrate victories, process challenges, learn together in ways that promote um, equity of voice and deep listening to one another. Um, so circle practice, for example, is something we do a lot. I might talk about it a little bit more later that helps Great people come together and have deep and meaningful conversations. We also work to respond when harm has been done. Um, And so we facilitate cases that involve students, staff, and faculty. Um, These are everything from cases that might otherwise go to my colleagues in the Office of Student Conduct um, for a conduct investigation, um, all the way through to cases that might otherwise be handled by the Office of Equity and Title IX. Um, So, cases involving sexual harm, we we are are the alternative pathway for folks who are interested in having a non punitive approach to uh, resolving and addressing harms of that nature. Um, We also have things that that fall outside of any code of conduct, whether it's the um, Title IX policy or the Code of Sexual Misconduct or Office of Student Conduct uh, policies. Uh, Folks who have experienced harms that fall outside of those areas can also come and work with our office. To be supported in healing, circle up resources around folks who have been harmed, or to be supported in the very difficult process of being accountable uh, to harms that we've caused. Uh, So these are some of the different areas that we actually facilitate cases in. I love to do the proactive community building cases. Those are always a lot of fun, Um, but I also find a great deal of satisfaction in helping people navigate situations of harm, whatever direction. Their, uh, they uh, occupy whatever place they occupy in that situation. And then finally, we do lots and lots of training. The The team is just me and my colleague Hanan Ahmed. Um, we're the only full-time folks on the team. And so we love to do workshops and trainings with partners across campus, um, staff partners, faculty partners, and students um, to share these skills, share this philosophy, and, and help people think about how to live in restorative ways. And, be in our relationship with the rest
0: of the community. Well, I can speak with so much um, enthusiasm for your workshops. We have um, definitely taken advantage of your of skills and uh, training and really appreciate that. And Pablo, thanks so much for answering that question. And I can imagine um, our students will really appreciate hearing a little bit about your journey and what led you to this work. And then as always, I appreciate the many different um terms and ways you've, you've been thinking about this work, so thank you, but I want to think a bit more with you now about the Penn community and what it looks like from your vantage point at restorative practices. You're an expert at mediating interpersonal conflict and healing harmful dynamics between individuals and their community. How does this influence your approach to our community of students, of faculty, and of staff at Penn?
1: So really excellent question, and. It's I appreciate the way that this is framed because, as I mentioned, the restorative philosophy really has a, a strong foundation in the concept of community and the idea that uh, of being in right relationship with other people. In part, this is because many restorative practices draw their inspiration from indigenous ontologies and lifeways. Um, there's proximal connections to Tlingit peoples and North and other Northwestern nations, but but it also reflects and is inspired by Maori people and, and other indigenous peoples around the world. And um, one concept that's prevalent across many of these worldviews is the concept of reciprocity and the importance of being in good relationship. And so when we talk about community, I, I really like to think about, you know, I think sometimes we speak really abstractly and metaphorically about community. We are all members of the Penn community, right? But what does that actually mean practically for us? And for me, it's those webs of interrelation and interdependence that mean that, that that make community something real, as opposed to just a concept, right? So there's the Penn alumni community, absolutely, but what does that actually mean? It means that there's an opportunity to uh, reach out, to support, to make a connection, to have a conversation. Um, those are those are the kind of concrete ways in which we relate to one another. So there are these distinct layers of our community, right? As you mentioned, students, faculty, staff. There's also all of the people who fall under none of those categories, who are also inter- in, uh, embedded and interweaved with the, the broader Penn community, who, who I think we also need to think about and take into account. So when I think about the Penn community, I think of many overlapping communities lots of circles and webs that lay on top of each other and link and, and, and mesh with one another, which is also really relevant when we're doing healing and accountability work because it's important for me to think not only about the people who are most directly involved, though our processes center on them, but also where are all of the what are all the webs of connection um, through shared academic interests, because people are in the same student group, because people occupy the same physical spaces, because people um, are part of the same sort of intellectual project. There are all these ways in which people might find themselves in community with one another um, that might be super relevant to meaningfully addressing a challenge, a harm, um, or a conflict. So I think that that's a big part of how I think about uh, our communities of students, faculty, and staff. It's, It's again, to reiterate, it's about those webs of, of interconnection and uh, reciprocal obligation. Um, you know, In restorative justice, we oftentimes talk about what we're trying to do when we're doing restorative practices, restorative justice work, is identify and address harms, needs, and obligations. We want to understand what harms have happened or are at risk of happening, what needs are present for everyone involved in a community, and then obligations. Yeah. Mm-hmm needs to do what who who has the obligation to address those needs and we all wherever we sit in a community um do have obligations to ourselves and to one another so again that's that's a bit about how i think about community in general and the way it plays out here at Thank you so much for thinking
0: of community as webs of connection. I'm going to think about that for a really long time and the way that you've complexified our understanding here of community. Thank you, Pablo. So your website notes three tiers of restorative justice and several proactive and ongoing practices involved in the work. And I just want to read from your website. You say the tiers are number one, build and strengthen relationships. Number two, respond to conflict and harm. Number 3 reentry support. So Pablo, can you talk a little bit more about how you see the tiers working within the pen community and the specific proactive and maintenance practices that are involved in each stage?
1: Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. It's a great way to think about more specifically what what we actually do. So restorative. I'll, let me start by disambiguating uh, two phrases that I've been using a lot and using somewhat interchangeably, but I want to be really clear about the distinction, and that will help explain these stages. So I've been saying restorative justice and restorative practices. Restorative justice is an older idea, it's an older term, was popularized in the 70s, the 80s, really. Um, and it's referring to the application of all these philosophies that I've been talking about, about harm, needs, obligations, interrelationship, specifically in situations where there's been a, an act of harm, and someone has done something that hurt somebody else you're trying to respond to that in a good way, in a way that helps everyone move forward in a, in a, in a healthy way, in a positive way, um, and that addresses those needs. Restorative practices is, the, is a term that we use to describe the application of those ideas and philosophies in a broader sphere of uh, contexts, right? So when we talk about the proactive work of building and strengthening relationships, that's restorative practices. It's using some of the same facilitation techniques like circle practice or restorative conferencing um, with the idea of basically helping prevent harm as opposed to simply responding to it. So my program is restorative practices at Penn, which means that we do both, right? We do the proactive work, we do re-entry work, but we also do that restorative justice work of responding to conflict and harm. So I think that's helpful, hopefully, to to disambiguate those two terms that I use somewhat interchangeably. So when it comes to building and strengthening relationships, the idea to go back to that metaphor of webs of of connection, um, when we do proactive community building work um, to strengthen relationships, I like to think of it as tightening that web, right? helping people become more consciously aware of the relationships they already have. and have a sort of deeper set of relationships so that, one, harm is less likely to happen, right? When we have strong relationships in a community, we're less likely to behave in sort of what we might broadly call antisocial ways, ways that are harmful to the community. And harm will happen no matter how strong a community is. Um, so it helps the community be more resilient in the face of harm. So a lot of what that actually looks like is... Um, proactive circles. So circle to speak a little bit more about that is uh, ultimately as it's applied approach to facilitation and also approach to community on a deeper level that values equity of voice and equal participation. And to speak about it in the simplest possible terms really quickly, uh, circle involves sitting together in a circle, (laughs) as it sounds like, and um, Having two people who are serving as circle keepers raise open-ended questions that are relevant to the community, um, whether it's because there's a decision that needs to be made, a concept that needs to be unpacked, um, an event that needs to be processed, right? But but in this case, we're talking about separate from a situation of active harm. And then you go around the circle and every individual in that space gets to answer the prompt or gets to speak to what they've uh, heard so far um, uninterrupted and you just go around in a circle however many times you need and time allows to let people really share uh, openly and vulnerably and invite everyone else to listen deeply to what those people have to say. There's a lot more to it, things that we do to help really set the stage and create a container where people feel as comfortable as possible to be honest, open, vulnerable. But what it really does, and especially relevant in the higher ed context, and to be frank, the pen context, is it helps people exhale, helps people slow down a little bit, and helps people shift their mindset away from deliverables and towards relationships. And so by having a deliberately slow, methodical, intentional process where we spend a lot of time uh, arriving at speaking about shared values, setting group norms, uh, setting intention, and then giving each and every individual the opportunity to speak as much as they need to about whatever topic can. It, it really encourages folks feedback that I've gotten especially here is it encourages folks to listen to really listen to and see and connect with um, in whatever form makes sense for, for them the other people that they are already in community with on a deeper level and so I think that that's a big part of what we do when we're doing the uh, proactive relationship building um, to help people we don't just use circle, but circle is one of my favorite ways to do it. Just to help people slow down, recognize the connections they have, and see each other in a fuller, a fuller vision of each other's humanity. Um, it increases a sense of care, a sense of belonging, and it also helps transform things from a sort of hypothetical community to a much more embodied, practical community. Where that person who, like, yes, maybe they're in your department, or maybe they're in your class, or maybe you live on the same hall as them, um, can turn them from someone you recognize and who you are in kind of quote unquote community with to somebody who maybe you'd ask for help if you need it, right? Somebody you could talk to uh, about a a, a challenge you're facing or a question that you have. Somebody who might want to share a meal with you, right? All of these things that can help people feel more interconnected and and feel more supported. Um, And all of those things, feeling interconnected, feeling supported, having strong relationships, are some of the best protective factors against, first of all, harmful behavior and including inclusive of harmful behavior to oneself um, of, all, of all different kinds. And so uh, that's why I think ideally, and we, we try to live this out, 80% of our work should be in that tier one, building and strengthening relationships. Now, obviously I mentioned earlier, there's two of us as full-time staff. So I guess we could each take you know roughly 20,000 people uh, and try to do the community building work that needs doing with with them. Obviously, that's not particularly feasible, which is part of why I love doing those workshops and trainings, because there's a lot of great ways to build this, do this community building work um, for yourself. It's also super helpful across power differentials. So we talk about um, student, staff, and faculty. There are some inherent sort of... Um, Structural differences in terms of power and position that exists between its roles. People have different roles, they have different access to resources. They have different positions in the hierarchy of the university. And circle work across those boundaries can be really valuable to help people um, be in good relationship with each other. So that's a big part of what we do and, and, and where I like to spend a lot of my time. But we also have to do work because conflict, no matter how strong community is, conflict will happen. You have two people in one space. Eventually, there will be conflict. This conflict is just disagreements about what needs to happen or how it needs to happen. That's inevitable and all over the place. Uh, and harm happens too. Harm is something that is that is that can is preventable, but it does happen and will continue to happen as we strengthen our communities. And so, it's really helpful to be able to have established procedures about how you do intervene once a harm has happened, once conflict has broken out, Um, not in order to quell it, but in order to, or to reverse it even, but to address it. Um, A phrase that's often used in restorative justice work is the idea of of supporting people to move forward in a good way. And the process of a restorative facilitation when harm has happened, it's again, the 80-20 rule plays out. We spend about 80% of our time in what we call pre-conference meetings these are one-on-one individual conversations with all the stakeholders the people who are involved in the situation which means the people who are harmed people who are responsible for the harm and and also very often other relevant members of the community folks who are connected uh, to the situation or to the people involved um, who have some stake in, in what happened or in what needs to happen in order for folks to move forward in the good And in those pre-conference meetings, we spend a lot of time helping people think through, unpack what happened, what were the contributing factors, how did the the people get themselves uh, involved in that situation, and then really significantly, um, what are the needs that exist now, right? This harm happened, this situation happened, what's needed by the people who are involved What are the accountability needs? of the people responsible? Are there learning needs? Do they need support in order to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And what are the needs of the people who have been harmed? Um, Do they need an apology sometimes? Many times they don't. Do they need uh, restitution of some kind, symbolic or material? Often yes, right? Uh, And so we actually, in these situations, will go through and parse out what the harm was, Um, We have a system of of identifying harm, breaking it out into four major categories. We talk about material and physical harm. Uh, This is the sort of most straightforward harms. Uh, Things like a stolen laptop or a broken hand or or lost time. Um, We talk about emotional and spiritual harms. Those are those feelings of sadness, anger, pain, fear that someone might experience um, when harm happens to them. It's also, you know, spiritual harms can take many different forms, but uh, shorthand that I sometimes use to really boil down what that concept means is it's, it's that harm that we can experience when our understanding of ourselves and the world and our actual experience um, become disconnected from one another. And there's a space, a gap that forms between who we think we are and how we think the world is and what we see, what we do, what happens around us. And that can be often experienced as a a very profound spiritual harm for folks. Um, So that's what we mean when we talk about spiritual harms. There's also uh, relational and communal harms, damaged relationships, broken trust, uh, fractured friendships. Uh, And finally, we talk about uh, individuals who are involved in these processes about inflamed structural and historical harm. These are those harms that aren't just about what happened in that moment between the individuals there, but harms that activate, right, that inflame pre existing structures, histories of, of harm or of oppression. And so a lot can be said to unpack that concept. But a shorthand way I also use sometimes to describe this is it's the distinction between calling someone a jerk, right, and using something like a racial slur or using violent uh, gendered language to talk to or about someone referencing some sort of serious harm um, or historical event. Both of them are mean things to say to someone, but one is is predominantly an emotional or relational harm. The other is not just about that relationship. It it reactivates, it deploys uh, this much larger system history of of personal and communal harms that someone might be carrying or engaging in, And the reason we take the time to unpack and identify these different types of harm is because different kinds of harm require different kinds of repair. Uh, Different needs arise from from these different forms of harm. And so we will, in our process for responding to harm or conflict, we'll go through those different types of harm with all the parties and work with them think about what are the needs that arise there? And what power do the people who are at the table have to take action to address those needs in a meaningful way? So that's a big, a bit of an insight into what we actually do in our restorative processes, um, our restorative justice processes when the harm has actually happened. Those processes almost always conclude with a joint session. Um, and that's an opportunity for the people involved to have a facilitated encounter with one another, either directly or indirectly, um, and to say what they need to say, ask what they need to ask, and collaboratively build a plan to address the needs uh, that have arisen from behind in a good way. So that's a bit of what is involved in those processes. They take time. They're they're uh, intensive. They involve a lot of conversation, a lot of meetings. But I find that the outcome in these processes when we're able to see them through is a much deeper understanding of the harm, much more um, meaningful uh, accountability for the people who have caused the harm, and honestly, a great deal of uh, deeper satisfaction for the people who were harmed um, when versus when the person who harmed them is, is just punished, um, rather than take, when that person takes on the responsibility of, making amends for the harm that they've caused in their people. Finally, that, that last tier that you highlighted Leah is re-entry support and that's also really important. Sometimes uh, an accountability in the game process might require that someone spend time away from a community, whether it means leaving the university or just taking time away from a club or a class or a student group. Um, sometimes taking some, some space and, and having a period of separation is, is important. Also, restorative processes aren't the only thing that are happening here. Folks are suspended. That happens. Folks take medical leave That also happens. And so reentry support in any of those situations is thinking about how do we circle up around this person who in some cases has done harm, which is why they left. In other cases, just were disconnected from the community for some, for some other reason. But how do we think about the circumstances of their departure and the circumstances of their arrival, to help make that return uh, as smooth and supportive as possible. So we've done fewer of these, and you'll notice if you if you look on the website, the reentry support is the, is the smallest piece. Um, but it's really critical because if we don't think about reentry in a restorative way, um, regardless of what the reasons for why someone left was, um, we're much more likely to have additional harms
0: happen down the line. Well, Pablo, thank you so much for walking us through the different, very intentional ways you think about practices at restorative practices. I really appreciated all the different ways you, for example, diced out harm, what kinds of harm, the ways you talk about circle practice and really thinking about what, um, you know, would orient people towards relationship versus task, really fascinating processes. I appreciate you telling us more about them. So I'd like to reflect with you to end our time together, if that's okay. The past two years have been deeply challenging. We are witnessing attacks on democracy abroad, causing much uncertainty, both internationally and domestically. We are coming out of a pandemic which has altered the way we live and work. We've been exposed to tragedies like the murder of George Floyd and chilling anti-Asian hate crimes. Yet we have witnessed widespread protest marches where people of all races have joined together to decry these deep injustices. We've experienced political toxicity, polarization, and even an insurrection on our Capitol building in Washington, D.C., yet we've also seen a record amount of voting and political participation. All these things have influenced the way we as U.S. citizens think about our U.S. community and have rippled out to affect the way we think about Penn as well. In short, living in community is both challenging and invigorating, deeply painful, yet at times deeply rewarding. We want to examine what are some of the challenges and joys of your work with the Penn community. So Pablo, what are some of the things that have been challenging these past couple of years? And what have been some of the things that have brought you joy, hope, and encouragement?
1: I really appreciate this question. I think it's a a great way to wrap up our conversation want to thank you again for, for the time that you've given me. Um, I think that um, these past years, starting again, as I said just when I began here at Penn, have been fraught with challenges. Um, I think the pandemic plays a really critical role in them um, for all sorts of reasons. People have experienced extreme deep personal losses over the past two years. People have experienced also, even those of us who have been lucky enough to not be touched as personally by the pandemic, have been witnessing uh, the fear and the suffering and the loss around us. Um, And so I think something that I noticed as I was orienting myself and building relationships here at Penn is that everyone's tank was at zero. Um, Everyone who I was working with and talking especially over my first full year here, uh, which took me over the summer of 2020 and into to the 21 uh, school year. Um, everyone I talked to, students, staff, and faculty, were running on very little emotional energy that we all spent, felt, everyone I spoke to felt very stretched thin, very stressed, stressed um, just having a really difficult time. And that's hard on its own. But add to it the fact that none of the pre-existing challenges that we had relationally, socially, and globally went away. So there were things that people were... All the things that we had to do anyway in terms of work and life were more difficult. People were more tired and more stressed, um, had less energy and reserve. And also... Things like the impacts of structural and systemic racism, right, were hitting new levels of intensity and uh, striking deeper chords with people who, um, some of whom were very aware and had been struggling in that area for a long time, some people who really hadn't been as consciously aware of these deep histories and structures of power and oppression before. And so... We see things like the uprisings in some of the 2020, which are not unrelated to the experiences that we were collectively having because of COVID. So, uh, you know, I think when I think about challenges, I think about the fact that there were a lot of harms that happened, a lot of conflicts that happened, and conflicts that escalated to a new level because everyone's reserves were really low. During my uh, first you know, I really still to this day, but especially during my first year of here. Um, And so I think that was something that was really, really hard. It was also difficult in some ways to build relationships and build community when I hadn't actually met most of my colleagues or a lot of the students uh, in person. It was really hard in a lot of ways. And I have to say, I was a real skeptic before the pandemic about the power, the capacity to do Deep relationship building, community building, the story of work over the phone or over Zoom. And I'm a total convert at this point. I actually was, you know, so this isn't what I was planning to say, but I, but I will say um, some real hope, joy, and encouragement came from how well people rose to the occasion um, to do the work of building community and building relationships and making, making events um, when given the opportunity and the right supports. Um, even in this pandemic context, even in the uh, digital context, right? Um, So that was wonderful. I also think that I have seen the excitement with which people have grabbed hold of, especially the community building work of restorative practices, um, how eager folks have been to implement in their own areas, and the really beautiful and powerful experiences that I've had sitting in circle with people Having these conversations, mm. meeting and making connections with all sorts of people across the uh, campus, all sorts of people who I'm really proud to be uh, part of the same community with. And so that's something that's pretty, brought me a lot of joy and a lot of hope. The fact that there is an awareness, right, that, that we need to make changes. We need to make changes in the way that we are in relationship and in community with each other. We need to make changes. In about, uh our obligations to ourselves and to one another and, and the ways that we do things. That the status quo has been hurting people, has been doing harm, and that there's a real interest that a lot of people have in, in trying to do things differently uh, in a way that uh, honors all of our humanity in a, in a good way. So uh, I think that's been incredibly helpful and it was a lot of fun to be meeting friends and colleagues and students um, and doing
0: that work together. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Pablo Sidera. We have enjoyed our time with you and again are so grateful for the ways you serve and care for the Penn community. This concludes our series on communities of practice. Join us this summer for a special episode of the park hosted by Penn students from Icarus. I'm so happy to pass my mic to them for this special episode as they take an interdisciplinary look at social isolation and its impact on personal and community wellness. Until then, take good care.